0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sometimes when you use the word garden, people immediately conjure up images of the ornamental perennial border. Other people, however, conjure up colorful visions of the summer vegetable garden, beginning to groan this time of year under the abundance and literal weight of the summer harvest of tomatoes, peppers, corn, zucchini, and so on. Throughout history, these two distinct kinds of gardens, let's call them the ornamental garden on one hand and the edible garden on the other have had lots of overlap, sometimes inadvertently, and sometimes very intentionally. Who among us has not noted the beauty of the blossoms on any fruit tree, the freshness of the first peas of spring, or the comforting shape and color of the apples of autumn? And who does not fully appreciate the double duty of some of our flowers and flowering plants? Roses and salvias and nasturtiums, for example, in being both edible and beautiful. Today, we're joined by Stephanie Bittner... co-owner with fellow plant person floral and garden designer Alethea Harampolis of Homestead Design Collective based in the San Francisco Bay Area. They design beautiful gardens that incorporate edible plants throughout. Stephanie is co-author with Leslie Bennett of The Beautiful Edible Garden. In February of 2017, 10 Speed Press will publish a book co-authored by both Stephanie and Alethea entitled harvest. Welcome Stephanie.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: So I recently attended a presentation you gave at the Marin Art and Garden Center on the beauty of edibles interwoven into home landscapes. And this wasn't necessarily a new concept to me, but I found your emphasis and approach really compelling and fresh somehow. We're going to get into that a little more deeply, but first let's start with you and how you got here. What influences in your life, Stephanie, brought you to your love of plants and gardens? Well, I I think hopefully with most folks,
1: um, the beginning of your life, your relationship with a garden really comes um, at home. And um, I grew up in the Bay Area um, and this is a, an area where we definitely are able to grow food and flowers year round. We have fantastic weather here, and my mother always kept a, a small kitchen garden. And um, and of course, it was during the time of the California food you know revolution, and everyone was discovering really you know very much growing with fresh foods. And um, and I was kind of, I was raised in that environment. Um, I think it's really interesting in that I I didn't have influence. Um, on a farm. Um, I think we all have roots in in farm life. If you look back at your family, you know, family tree, mm-hmm. someone probably was farming. Um, I definitely learned about growing food in a garden, and that's something that I talk a lot about with our clients. Um, gardening with food is very different than farming with food. Farming is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gardening with food um, doesn't have to be. And it's really about having a relationship with a plant that is able to give, give back to you.
0: And that's really an important difference because one of the things that deters people from it is the maintenance, sometimes the overabundance, and the care necessary to um, to farm these edible crops in a home in a home landscape. So what at what point did you realize that gardening? And thinking about it, and writing about it, and and helping others do it, uh, was going to be your career. And at what point did the edible incorporated into the ornamental become the emphasis of your career?
1: Sure. So, um, I took some time off when I when I had my children, and found that during that time I was growing growing my own food. Um, Pretty much, my whole history of gardening has always included combining plants for cutting and bringing in the house, or a plant to eat, um, to garnish food, garnish cocktails. So my point of view of gardening has always been, how can I use this plant? How you know I'm going to plant something? What is it going to give back to me? Um, How can I use it in some way, even if it was just simply making you know daisy chains as a kid. I was definitely always cutting and prepping and eating these plants. Um, but it really wasn't until I took some time off. I'd, I had been working in the world of nonprofits and, um, and found myself spending all this time in the garden and, um, and really dedicating a lot of time to growing food that when I thought about what I wanted to do next in my life, I decided to go back and study landscape design. And um, and during that process, I was very. It was very clear to me that I wanted to design gardens that included edibles. Um, and then I was really lucky. I mean, so much in life. I mean, just the. And I and I actually find this a lot with growing food. Is that people are are all about connecting with their food. And once I started going into this world of growing edibles, um, people were so excited about it. I was given some opportunities that I that were just really special. Um, uh, my mentor, um, who gave me my first job in edible landscaping, was a well-known landscape designer in Berkeley, and, um, and he hired me on the spot. And I learned a lot, and I started teaching classes. And then as I was teaching classes, the managing editor of 10-Speed Press happened to um, to attend my gardening classes. And then I was given the opportunity to write a book. And, and so in so many ways, um, I feel like growing food And teaching people about growing food has just opened up many doors for me.
0: And so I love that. It's clearly the universe is is speaking to you and and saying, yes, go this way. Yes, go this way, which is always good to have those those signs. Um, Why do you... Personally, I, I mean, I, I can hear this experience of taking time off and having your kids, and, and I think of my kids in the garden and that connection between myself, my children, the garden, the food, the plants, and it's this wonderful, holistic, symbiotic loop. Um, where do you, How would you articulate that importance when you take this out to clients or into your classes? Why is this so important? To, to them and to the world as a whole?
1: Well, what I think, you know, I think that people, you know, in today's day and age, I think especially with the amount of technology that's in our lives, people are looking for ways to connect. And I um, and I think that gardening allows you to connect to the place that you live. And it could just simply be a container garden on a deck, or you might have a quarter of an acre, a traditional flat backyard that you're able to actually get your hands in the dirt. It really doesn't matter what the size of the garden is. It's really the act of doing it. I find myself in front of a computer much more than I want to be. I'm looking for the antithesis of it and having an experience of actually making a personal connection with, with where I'm spending my time. And gardening, in my opinion, is valid for doing that. Um, our gardens are really... Uh, you know, we, we focus on gardens that provide harvest, but really the first place we start when we design gardens is that we want to create a beautiful space and creating an outdoor environment that is really an extension of your home, especially for so many folks who have home offices these days. they need People are looking for um, an extension of their home that reflects their personal style, that reflects who they are. It's not just a big piece of green lawn. You know, I really think that our gardens are really surpassing that idea of a tra- traditional lawn. It's really about creating outdoor rooms. Um, and once we start off from there, you you create a beautiful space. You include plants that give back to you. And for us, the third thing, and this is very much you know my personal ethos, is, is introducing organic gardening um, by including plants in the landscape that support organic garden care that attract pollinators, that attract beneficial insects, because the reality is is when you start to use your entire property to have plants that provide harvest, you also need to transition your garden care to organic care, and when you do that, you're actually taking care of the groundwater on your property, you're taking care of an environment of supporting the local wildlife, and, and you actually create a healthy ecosystem of where you personally live, and then there are ramifications of that as it expands to your neighbors, and it's I find that, you know, in what we do is really the transformation of these properties and what starts to happen on them.
0: And I like that connection you make between transitioning to or organic gardening and the rationale for it is just indisputable when you do begin to incorporate edibles throughout the entire landscape. I think anybody would not be able to argue that um, it's far more important to themselves specifically – to have something organic to eat rather than if the juniper on the front corner that doesn't do anything and is just a static space filler, um, not that junipers have to be that, but I'm just giving an example, um, then you don't I'm thinking about juniper infusions. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The minute you said that, the minute I said (laughs) juniper, I thought, now wait, gin, (laughs) juniper, but in any event, um, a, let's just say, a nondescript shrub that you don't have an edible connection to on the front corner, um, you, you think about it differently if you're not going to eat it. And so that ability to eat the things that are on your land make you think about it in, in a deeper way, which, which I like that connection.
1: A lot of what we do um, is really looking at the ornamental qualities of plants that also happen to be edible. So um, I think when you mentioned the nondescript hedge at the corner, I think of a privet. This idea of an ornamental edible swath can be really easy. Um, in many ways, we just look at the ornamental qualities that you're looking for in the plant. Um, we were talking about the nondescript privet. Well, there's, are, there are also nondescript edible shrubs. And a great example is swapping out a culinary bay laurel for a privet. They both have the exact same ornamental qualities, but you can eat one and not eat the other. Um, and then if, if we have a client who really loves magnolias, let's say we love swapping out the Fuyu persimmon for a magnolia. Um, they both have the same structure as far as what they look like in the landscape. They both, they all both have very broad, shiny, chartreuse-colored leaves. The only difference is, is that in the winter, you get a flower from the magnolia, And in the persimmon, later in the year, you get a beautiful winter fruit. Um, But they both do many of the same things in the landscape. Um, I do want to say, I I think it's important to save space and to include plants in your garden that you love. And sometimes people love plants like magnolias that um, maybe you harvest as a cut flower or you just have an emotional connection to and you don't have to eat every plant in your garden. I, do, I think that that's almost on the verge of farming. Um, there's, I think there's enough room in our gardens so that the edible plants can interact and be planted right next to a plant that maybe you're harvesting for foliage for your vase or that you actually just enjoy in the garden completely.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're reveling in the idea of the beauty of edible plants, not segregated off into edible garden or formal kitchen garden or potager, but interwoven and as the backbones of entire landscapes. Gardener, garden designer, and author Stephanie Bittner is elaborating on this emphasis to garden design advocated for by she and her partner Alethea Harampolis, co-owners together of Homestead Design Collective. Join us again after the break. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Before the break, we began our conversation with Stephanie Bittner, co-owner with Alethea Harampolis of the Homestead Design Collective. Based in the San Francisco Bay Area, their emphasis is on creating landscapes that are beautiful and multifunctional through the year by incorporating edible plants at every level of the garden, from trees to flower borders to hedges and more. Welcome back. You begin to really plumb these depths in The Beautiful Edible Garden. Talk a little bit about that book. Describe that book for listeners, and then talk a little bit about what they can expect from your upcoming book, Harvest.
1: Sure. The Beautiful Edible Garden is, at its core, is a design book. And and so it very much takes this idea of, let's start with the front yard focal point tree. And what kind of qualities do you need for a focal point tree? And how can you now make that edible? And it really walks you through the landscape. And how do you, how do you swap out a screening plant? How do you swap out um, a hedge or a ground cover? Um, and it doesn't really talk about the plants themselves. It talks more about these design principles. And how do you design with food-producing plants? Harvest, in many ways, is the next step. And harvest is, is really, in many ways, inspired by our clients and the people who we build these gardens for. Because I have filled their gardens with things like agastaches and all these different types of plants, the bay laurel I was mentioning earlier. Um, and then they say to me, well, what do I do with it now? And, um, and so what harvest does is it really is very plant-focused uh and it is um it is divided in the gardening seasons of early, mid and late and um and it follows you through a whole gardening season of plants that are in your landscape which you can grow where these plants should be in your garden but then what do you do with them so um so i mentioned the bay laurel um we start off you know the bay laurel is in the book and and there's a whole page dedicated to to this plant and then you flip the page, and then it actually gives you a project that you can do with the plant. Hmm. And what was really exciting about it is that we, um, we photographed the book for a year and a half in my garden. And it is, um, every photo is taken in the exact moment of harvest of each of these plants. So You can really see the seasons change as you're, um, as you're going through the book.
0: And for those of us who don't live in the sublime climate of the San Francisco Bay Area, does it have a broad range of hardiness in the plant selections? It does,
1: and um, and believe me, my editor at 10 Speed Press made sure of it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we included plants that people can even grow in Alaska. Um, we included a lot, although there's no annual vegetables in the book, we really tried to stay out of the raised kitchen bed. Um, you know, it's not about growing tomatoes. Mm-hmm. It is about the flowering basils. Um, but we included plants that were annual. Many people in, the, in our country, actually in the middle of our country, who have really harsh winters, really, you know, they, they're, they, they're living in the world of annual Of annual flowers and annual vegetables and annual herbs and there's a lot of information based on that. Um, Many of the plants that that we talk about can be grown throughout the country. Um, There are only two plants that are quasi-California specific which I mention in the book only because um, I want to introduce people to the idea of them and and then say and I also then give instructions on how you can overwinter them indoors if you would like to try them.
0: And what are those two plants?
1: Oh, the finger lime. Um, are, you, are you familiar with the finger lime, the N- Australian finger lime?
0: No, I'm not.
1: Oh, this is my favorite new citrus, although it's not necessarily a, a new plant, uh, new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Australian finger lime is, um, is, the, is the tree that produces uh, the finger lime, which is known as the citrus caviar the chefs in San Francisco are using it liberally right now in cocktails and in, on top of oysters and fancy fish tacos. It's kind of like nature's um, nature's response to the pop rock because these limes, you split them open, and instead of having um, typical citrus flesh like you would have a, have a lime or a lemon, it is filled with these tiny little balls that are filled with juice and you put them in your mouth and they pop like a pop rock and release the lime juice. And they are so much fun. Um, mine, I, I have a tree in my own garden and I have to say they barely make it indoors because my children are like eating them all day long. <laughs> um, they are so, and they're just a really unusual looking tree. The tree um, can be kept as a dwarf. I keep mine only four feet tall Uh, It is a myrtle leaf citrus, which means that its leaves are the shape of boxwood. Mm. So it's a really beautiful tree for the landscape. Um, The finger lime um, I mentioned is Australian. It's also considered the most drought tolerant of citrus. And I'd say that with an asterisk because citrus really are not drought tolerant. However, it is a hardy citrus as far as it's able to, doesn't need to be pampered with lots of water. Uh, it doesn't. It cannot go off irrigation, but it it doesn't need to be pampered like maybe um, a fancy orange or you know a, or a lemon. We need to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really really enjoy the finger lime, and then the other is the Kinoto orange. So they are both citrus, which again can live in greenhouses or be or they can be brought indoors in the winter. The Kinoto orange is one of my favorites. I happen to really love to preserve. Um, fruits and do a lot of jamming uh, and make a lot of simple syrups and a lot of cocktails. Uh, The canotto orange is the basis of the Italian aperitif campari. Mm. And uh, so it's a sour orange. And you actually, um, what's prized about it is the skin and all the essential oils. And um, I use it a lot in in making marmalades. but, um, But in the book, I talk about how to actually make uh, your own Benda Orange, which is uh, an apertif
0: yum okay i 'm looking no. forward to having both of those <laughs> <laughs> and giving them a try so as a final question t- to leave our listeners with maybe three suggestions that you would have for them based on on the conversation we 've just had and then the the two books that we 've talked about. To go out into their gardens and evaluate um, and consider different things in order to um, extend the, the harvest or the use or the utility and the beauty in their landscapes, what would those three tips be, Stephanie?
1: Well, for me, it always starts with the soil. Um, just as our, we are as what we eat, the plants are what they eat. So making sure that you are growing your plants in a food-safe environment um, lead has been in the news a lot with what's happened. What's happened in Michigan with lead and in- lead in the water system. Um, there can be lead in your soil if you have an older house that once had lead paint. So I think it's really important before you start growing food in ground is to check your soil. Um, the soil tests are really easy to do, um, and you just have peace of mind um, once you make sure you have a food safe environment. Bringing in lots of good organic compost and just feeding your soil and creating an environment that's really welcoming for plants. And this is for ornamental and edible plants alike. Um, the more that you are creating a healthy environment for them to grow in, the more they're going to be giving back to you in their, in their beauty. Um, and then third, I, I would start with what you love to eat. Um, we often start our consultations just directly with that. What do you eat on a daily basis? What, what is hard for you to find in the grocery store that you really love and kind of coming up with a list. Um, and, then, and then learning about those plants and seeing where, where you can put them in your garden. Some things that I really love need shade, and I actually have a very sunny garden. So I need to identify where in my garden I can actually put those
0: plants and, um, and then make space for them. Those are excellent recommendations, and I thank you very much for joining us today, Stephanie. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I loved being here. Stephanie Bittner is co-owner with fellow plants person, floral, and garden designer Alethea Harampolis, of Homestead Design Collective based in the San Francisco Bay Area. In 2013, Stephanie and fellow edible garden designer Leslie Bennett co-authored The Beautiful Edible Garden. In February of 2017, 10 Speed Press will publish a book entitled Harvest, co-authored by both Stephanie and Alethea. Join us again next week as the conversations continue when we're joined by Beth Pratt-Bergstrom, California Director of the National Wildlife Federation. She's the author of the recently released book titled, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, People and Wildlife Working It Out in California. This book was something of a surprise to me. It walks readers through the detailed stories of several specific wild animals and their plights, and sometimes successes, at coexisting with humans. The stories are deftly and effectively, poetically, emotionally, and personally, but never condescendingly, used to pull us as humans into them and then launch us from these specific examples into broader concepts. These broader concepts of habitat degradation, fragmentation, and outright loss are sometimes so overwhelming as to make us as readers and listeners shut down. But I did not shut down when reading this book. When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors interweaves hope and examples of possible broad solution approaches to some of these issues by focusing on the importance of relationship, education, connectivity, and finally, citizen science on the parts of people just like us, gardeners, nature lovers, thinkers. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. Since June of 2013, Matt Shilts has been my producer, having taken over from the illustrious Joe O, who taught us both a great deal. Matt was instrumental in the expanding of North State Garden into Cultivating Place and has been the program's producer and engineer these first six months of its life. As of this episode, Matt and his partner Laura are heading off to new and exciting adventures. And while I am very sad to see him go and will miss his enthusiasm and input, I wish them both all the best. Matt leaves Cultivating Place in the very capable and creative hands of Sarah Bohannon. Thank you, Matt, for everything and welcome, Sarah. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewel.